0: Welcome to the Procedures Podcast, I'm Mike Noonan and today we've got with us Professor Mark Fitzgerald who requires no introduction and he's going to talk about one of his favourite topics, I'm sure you'll agree Mark, which is plural decompression. Now with this course we've actually changed the name a little bit from the, your standard chest drain insertion to plural decompression and I might get you to start Mark with just the reasoning behind
1: plural decompression as a nomenclature for this one. Well, things have changed over the years, Mike. You know, the introduction of pleural decompression occurred in the later part of the 19th century, and then after the review of uh, empyema by the American military at the end of the First World War with the Empyema Commission, people were looking at pleural drainage of blood in particular to prevent empyema. So that was a sort of subacute procedure. The concept of having positive pressure ventilated patients being brought into a resus facility has really only happened in the last decade or two. And the emphasis really is to now, in resuscitation, decompress the pleural space to improve hemodynamic and respiratory function or to remove any compromise associated with tension, hemo and pneumothorax. So there's been a, a big change, really, in trauma So Rather than having a deferred procedure, it's now become part of a resuscitative procedure, obviously with a lot more risks and with a very, very short-term goal, which is to improve respiratory and circulatory function. So we sort of try and blend the two concepts, because if you look at pleural decompression, it's really two components. One is you want to decompress the pleural space, and then you want to insert a drain to allow ongoing drainage of air or blood. And the complications are associated with, basically, number one is malposition, So either the skin site's incorrect or the tube goes into a fish or doesn't reach the pleural space. That's a number one complication. And a second major complication is uh, tube impingement, even though it's relatively uncommon, but it can impinge on the mediastinum, it can impinge on the left ventricle from the left side or the right atrium from the right side, the tube can kink with malposition, or it can be just placed in a spot where it doesn't drain, particularly if it's intrafissural. And then the other issue associated with it, obviously, is an infection along the tract or empyema. So that immediate emphasis to decompress the pleural space has to be balanced against the fact that you don't want any of these downstream problems. So if we just go to the pleural decompression first, it's a two-step procedure. So if someone's very unstable... Basically you just want to decompress the pleural space and using a finger thoracostomy is the most appropriate way to do that. But it means that you need to uh, make an incision through the skin, you need to um, go through the intercostal muscles, you need to breach the parietal pleura and then you need to do a finger sweep to make sure that you're in the pleural space. It's important to find the correct position to make that skin incision. The recommended side is somewhere between the mid and the anterior auxiliary line in the fifth or sixth interspace. You can go into the fourth. Higher than that is problematic. Uh, you can hit a lateral thoracic vessel or sometimes because the chest wall's falling away from you it's very oblique and difficult to get into the interspace. Uh, the easiest way to find that, we, we use the mid-arm position so that if the patient's lying supine with the elbow fixed their side, halfway between the electron and the acromion, if you mark that point on the skin and then abduct the arm 90 degrees, you'll find that that's in the 4th, 5th or 6th interspace almost 100% of the time. And so we use uh, biometric marking in the patient's own skeletal anatomy to find an appropriate site to put the chest drain in. And then having prepped the skin with or without local anaesthetic, depending on the circumstance and the conscious state of the patient and how dire the situation is, you need to make an incision at that point over the rib below the interspace that you're going to go to so the tract that you make is aimed obliquely and superiorly. If you make an incision that just goes perpendicular to the skin, uh, most of the time if you insert a tube along that perpendicular tract, it will go into the fissure and then it may not function properly. So what we want the tube to do is run on the outside or the surface of the lung, and we want it to run superiorly and posteriorly. And to do that, it needs to be inserted through an oblique incision so that the tube then follows that tract. There's a common problem that people just make an incision perpendicular to the skin and then insert the tube along that perpendicular incision, and then they find it's in a German study at the start of this century showed that in multi-centre prospective study, 20% of the tubes went in interfazural, and it is a common problem, so we want to be able to avoid that. So, getting back to the person in extremis or the pre-hospital patient, we're using this with Ambulance Victoria and the helicopters now. You find the site, you make the incision, you dissect down the track with artery forceps, you may go into the pleural space at that time, and then you insert your finger into the pleural space. Now you do a sweep, some people have adhesions, and the pleural Adherent, and you can't get into the pleural space. Occasionally, there's clipping, and the pleura, the visceral pleura, may be clipped in the ribs. Sometimes you can sweep that away. Occasionally, you'll get some surprises. You'll you may feel that the the lungs up. You may feel that you can't feel the lung at all. Air and blood may vent with quite a rush at that time. And uh, sometimes you'll feel stomach in the left hand side of the chest. Sometimes. Uh, you'll feel uh, a rent in the diaphragm if you're low enough, but normally we don't want people that low where they'll be able to feel it.
0: Just with those two scenarios that you mentioned, so pleural adhesions and also clipping, um, just to qualify those a little bit more. So pleural adhesions are something that's certainly in my time in the trauma service where we seem to see reasonably frequently. And is it something that, that people should watch out for when they're doing this procedure? And It's
1: common. You see people with a lot of subcutaneous emphysema, but their lung's up. And usually it's because they've got adhesions and the lung hasn't fallen into the chest and the gas is escaping the subcutaneous tissue. But if you look at cadaver studies of elderly patients in the US, nearly all of the older patients have got some form of pleural adhesions. Now that could be... Due to a number of reasons, it's maybe since the advent of antibiotics there's less in the way of bacterial chest infections and maybe less in the way of pleural adhesions. But certainly the older the patient, the more likely they are to have pleural adhesions because of previous lung pathologies. And as you know, we're seeing an increasing number of older patients with chest injuries. So it's important to ensure that the lung is away from the chest wall and that you're not inserting instruments or the tube into uh, injured lung. And in that
0: case, you do have what you think is pleural adhesions you've already potentially cut into the chest and all and you're, you're feeling that are those adhesions. What would be your steps to get around that process?
1: Well, if you haven't got a space to insert a tube in, uh, don't insert the tube. So getting back to the original pleural decompression, the first thing is to, to make sure that you're in the pleural space and the pleura is vented. And as you know, Mike, that... In a really sick patient, that can be done in a very, very short period of time. And then you've got plenty of time to put a chest drain in. The chest is decompressed. If it's at a slightly oblique angle, the tract that you've made almost works like a one-way valve. And you'll find that air and blood will come out. And then at your leisure, you can then determine to put a, a chest tube in. But the resuscitative component is performed by the decompression. And then you're putting a tube in subsequently to allow ongoing drainage. Now, people confuse it with uh, IV insertion or endotracheal tube insertion, where the procedure is to actually secure a tube in the lumen. But there's no lumen that we're inserting a tube in. We're just inserting it into a space to ensure the tract doesn't close over and that we can allow ongoing drainage over the next few days. And that's a subacute procedure. We do it at the same time, but there's no urgency. People confuse pleural decompression with inserting an intercostal catheter. And I think inserting the drain is the procedure, but the primary procedure is breaching the pleura and exteriorising the contents to decompress the pleural space. And I think that's really the crux of why
0: we've named this procedure pleural decompression, as you say, because it just makes it clear that really
1: that is what our intention is. See, that's... That's why you're asking the questions, Mike, because you can say something in twenty seconds that took me about three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy on the other side. The pleural clipping that
0: you're talking about. So obviously, this is a very visual thing. But just for the audience who's who's listening, my understanding of this is really that it's a part of the lung, so the parietal pleura, is actually held in place by a, a couple of broken ribs or the the fracture.
1: Is that correct? It's common to have rib fractures on the lateral chest wall and particularly in high-speed motor vehicle accidents sometimes the arm is interposed between the say the car door and the chest wall sometimes it isn't but the ribs buckle in and as they buckle in they can pick up the uh, visceral pleura and then as they then resume their sort of almost anatomical position they they paperclip that pleura and the pleura over the surface of the lung gets caught up in the ribs as they return to the position. And usually there's a breach and often there's a significant pneumothorax and, and sometimes an ongoing air leak with this. And obviously you won't see it on a chest X-ray, you just see surgical emphysema, perhaps some busted ribs, perhaps, if you're lucky, even though it's a supine chest X-ray, a pneumothorax. But you stick your finger in and, and you, you can sometimes feel just a tiny little bit of tethering of the visceral pleura and you can attempt to sweep that away. You've talked
0: a lot about the the procedure, which is great, and about the indications in terms of of moving forward from fractured ribs and uh, obviously subcut emphysema, etc. Are you able just to walk us through your personal algorithm for when this procedure is indicated? And this is a very common thing that we do in the emergency department. But I think there's certainly been some, in my experience, going through um, working with you in the trauma unit, a bit more nuance around how it's actually indicated, and what I mean by that is obviously we're we're often the cases brought to us where you've got a supine chest X-ray and you've got some subcut emphysema. And the, the question of whether a, a chest tube should be inserted mm-hmm. pre or post CT yep. and how that actually fits into then your your downstream thinking, where the chest X-ray fits in, where the CT fits in.
1: Yeah, as you're aware, Mike, it's easy for the procedurals to drive the procedure rather than the patient. It's just that uh, people have procedural focus and they want to perform a procedure. and, And most of the time it's in the interest of the patient. But sometimes you have to modify the procedure in the best interest of the patient. So I'll give you an example. Maybe the person's got a blown pupil and they've got diminished air entry on the right and you wish to get a CT scan as soon as possible. The patient might have already gone straight onto the scanner or they're going to only stop briefly in a receiving bay and get scanned. We know that it takes about 11 minutes at least, up to 14 minutes, to put a chest drain in. So in this particular patient, uh, you may decide just on the area where there's diminished air entry and such, particularly if the person's compromised in a respiratory fashion hemodynamically, just to decompress the pleural space and not put a drain in at all so that you can go ahead and get that head CT scan. Because you're probably not going to scan the rest of the patient, you're probably just going to do the head scan and then you can go to the OR for craniotomy and then you can put the tube in up in the operating room. So you can actually defer the chest tube for these time-critical issues, particularly if they need immediate operative intervention. Now, that's rare, but it occasionally happens. And it's one of the reasons why we don't want chest drains inserted pre-hospital, because it's just going to delay things. We know by at least 10 minutes. While decompressing the pleural space is a temporising thing. So that uncommon scenario aside, we know that about a third of the time supine chest x-rays in blunt trauma patients don't show what turn out to be significant haemoneumothorosis, so they're not particularly sensitive and not particularly specific. People who've got haemodynamic compromise in our blunt trauma population, as you know, most of our patients have been in high-speed motor vehicle accidents or falls from a height and such like. If there's evidence of haemodynamic or respiratory compromise, and particularly with newer techniques like ultrasound scanning for pneumothorax or haemothorax, and if they've got that compromise, and there's evidence that the lung's down, or there's evidence of blood above the diaphragm, we want a chest tube inserted before they get the CT scan. And the reason for that is that uh, on the imaging we can see where the tube is. Uh, we can see that it's not interfissural, that it's not kink, that it's not pressing against the mediastinum that in fact all the chest drain and its side ports is within the pleural space. And a lot of these things are difficult to determine. Uh, But if you can see the drain on the subsequent primary CT scan, it really does help with subsequent management of the patient. Yeah, and
0: I think that's something that certainly I've taken away from working in the trauma service and seeing on the other side is that you, in the emergency department, you often don't understand the downstream complications. And as I think you've mentioned in some of our... uh, Uh, procedural videos this is really a two or three week course for the patient the chest drain stays in for three to five days and then they have some ongoing sequelae and, and management of this chest that's been decompressed and subsequently drained and knowing where that tube is when you've got a patient in intensive care day three with a drain that's no longer swinging
1: is actually a really important thing to know. I'll give you two good examples one is a patient with a persistent tachycardia after chest tube insertion and multiple trauma and, in fact, the CT shows the chest strain pressing against the right atrium and obstructing venous return and withdrawing the tubes of the tachycardia resolved. Another patient had a chest drain put in on the left-hand side and it's gone anteriorly. And the patient immediately dropped their blood pressure. In fact, on ECG, it had tombstone elevation anteriorly on the ECG. And the tube had gone anteriorly, kinked at the uh, pericardial reflection was presuming, on the LAD. And once the drain was removed, the ECG went back to normal. And uh, the patient did have a small troponin rise, but subsequently did, did fine. Good case to know where the tube is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it just helps in planning. And as you say, in the average chest drain insertion here it takes between 11 and 14 minutes. The actual time from skin incision to insertion of the drain is usually about a minute. And then the chest drain's in for, on average, about three, three and a half days, sometimes longer. If they get empyema, it usually occurs between 10 and 14 days after the procedure. We follow them up in the clinic after discharge until about three weeks after the injury. And uh, so it's really important to have an aseptic technique to take your time to insert the drain, carefully to secure it appropriately, and I'll come to that shortly, to remove any downstream consequences. And as you know, our empire rate at the moment is running at about 0.5%. We've been able to reduce that significantly in the last four or five years using a standardised technique and checklist.
0: I think that's a really interesting thing, certainly looking at your data around chest tube insertion and empyema rates and really it does reflect the the education program and standardized procedure that you actually have put in place at the Alfred here. So I think that's actually a very
1: interesting thing to take away from a listener's point of view. Yeah, I think it's the way people plan how to do the chest decompression. As I said, if the patient is in dire straits or peri-arrest, then just decompress the pleural space. And that's a separate procedure, putting in a chest drain. So if I'm worried about a patient, the patient, as I said, has got Zippo blood pressure and, and they're intubated, you can just put some prep over the skin, make sure you're in the right space using that position marking, abduct the arm, make an incision in the chest wall, insert your finger into the pleural space. That is the procedure. And it's quite separate to then putting in a chest drain. And to put in a chest drain... And I'll just step through it because I'm a bit obsessive about it, but I think it is important to do this perfectly. One is that the patient needs to be compliant. So if they're conscious, if possible, you need to get a consent. You need to position the patient appropriately. You need to mark the area appropriately. And again, if they're uh, awake, you need to put some anaesthetic, usually use 1%, with adrenaline locally and along the track before you start the prep, because we know that anaesthetic takes at least 10 to 15 minutes to work. Uh, people can get quite a bradycardic response when you breach the pleura, particularly if they're aware. And uh, most of our chest drains, when inserted, the insertion's assisted by a small dose of uh, intravenous ketamine given by a second doctor. As you know, that's usually between you know, up to about a quarter of a milligram per kilogram IV. It just dissociates them a bit for the procedure and stops that sort of adverse bradycardic response you occasionally see. And then it's best to do this with two people, if possible so that you have the patient supine with the arm abducted to 90 degrees. Uh, You need to prep the area. We usually use the core hexidine solution that's red-tinged so that we know that we've got complete coverage. You have a sterile field to work off. You don't put any contaminated instruments back onto that sterile surface. The interventionalists appropriately gowned. They've got double gloves on, double sterile gloves. They've got sterile gowns. They've got face masks, they've got headgear, they've got eyewear protection if possible. It's common people have got ribs fractured laterally and it's important to have double gloves to stop jagging your finger on on those busted ribs as you insert into the chest. And then you need to place drapes over, and we use adhesive drapes, over that lateral chest wall area and you keep the area sterile and aseptic. I noticed Colin McKenzie's group at the University of Maryland a few years ago when they video-recorded chest drain insertion, and these are people we've taken the lead from, there was a lot of cross-contamination. You know, tubes were going out of the sterile field, instruments were being passed across the patient, the swabs used to decontaminate the uh, patient's skin and provide an aseptic feel were then being put back onto the procedural tray and such like. So it's important to have a strict aseptic technique. And then once you've done that, you can then... Uh, insert the tube into a controlled fashion usually what i do is use my little finger as a hook i tend not to use the teens forcep i know, I know they're popular and it's a lot easier if you're in the fifth or sixth interspace because you've got a little bit more room to maneuver and i use a little finger on one hand as a hook and then i curve the tube as i insert that and that finger's in the plural space so that i can guide the tube along the chest wall away from the fissure.
0: And do you tend to get a chest x-ray before you've, if you're in a trauma bay for example where you've got a gantry chest x-ray, do you tend to get that chest x-ray then before you actually suture the tube in or will you be generally happy based on your feel of that tube moving
1: through the chest? I I think it depends on the operator. If you've got any doubt get a chest x-ray. I think that's the answer. So we double tie the tubes either side with the vertical mattress suture. The first tie is basically to position the tube and the second one's to secure it. If you're in doubt about where the tube is or if it's not functioning properly, or particularly someone with a very thick chest wall and a beef patient, or someone with a lot of uh, chest wall disruption, if you're uncertain, sure, get it. You just put the first suture in, position the tube and hold it with that suture, and then get a chest x ray in and just see where the tube's positioned. Because you don't have to come back and re prep or reinsert the tube. So, two vertical mattress sutures either side. And then we tend to close the skin just with staples for a couple of reasons. One is there's only enough suture material to do ver- two vertical mattress sutures. And closing the skin's important, particularly in the person who's coagulopathic, uh, because they tend to sort of ooze from the incision. And by stapling that close, you get less ooze and less dressing contamination, the requirement to keep changing the dressings. And then we put a keyhole piece of melon or non-stick dressing over the site, and then uh, some mesenteric dressing using Tegaderm or an equivalent. Is there a
0: ballpark insertion depth that you have for males and females or do you measure it before you insert the tube?
1: Well, on the chest drains that we use, the marker on the tube is actually the marker from the the side port on the chest drain that's most distal from the tip. So the markings aren't from the tip of the tube. They're from that side port. And so the average chest wall, we, we know the maximum ch- distance... Uh, between the um, chest wall and the pleural space is eight centimetres. And it varies. It's between about two, two and a half centimetres and eight centimetres in, in most adults, so there's quite a discrepancy. So, so in most patients, to be sure that's in the pleural space, that side-put, you need to be about ten centimetres. You know, so the skin marking has to be ten centimetres. But you'll find in some really small people or thin people, you, that can get down to about eight to six, but that's uncommon it's yeah, a rough rule of thumb in the average 70, 75 kilogram person. The skin marking will be 10 centimetres on the tube.
0: And do you mark the... Uh, some people talk about marking from the clavicle to the skin incision or you just tend to base on the feel of the chest tube going in and, and
1: what you think is the distance to the chest wall? Yeah, so what you're talking about is holding the chest drain over the patient to work out uh, how far you should insert it. But the, the big problem is is actually the distance between the pleural space in the skin, you tend to determine that when you're putting your finger yep. into the patient. It's important in people with really thick chest walls to make an incision, skin incision that's a little bit longer because the tract tends to tunnel so that you may be getting incision that's at least three, three and a half centimetres long so that your finger can actually reach the pleural space and sometimes, you know, I don't know how long my small finger is when I'm manipulating it but, but I guess my index finger's about... Eight nine centimetres long. I'm just boasting now, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but uh, but it's something like that, and um, and that actually gives you a rough idea of when you put your finger in how far you're going to have that skin marking out of the chest. You know, if if you put your finger in, and all of a sudden you're in the in the chest. You're not going to be inserting that chest drain to ten or twelve centimetres skin marking. So we've
0: covered a lot of ground. We've covered the indications for the procedure. We've covered how to actually perform it. Post-procedurally, at, uh, at our hospital, we tend to use antibiotics, either pre-insertion if we can, ideally, or afterwards, and then tie the tube, as you said, on both sides with a, with a mattress suture, and then put a sandwich of uh, Tegaderm film over it with a small uh, patch there to absorb any ooze. Is there any other post-procedural care or, or tips or tricks that, that we should bring out, Mark?
1: Look, it's interesting antibiotics and chest-drain insertion. I mean, there's some low-grade evidence that using a second-generation or equivalent reduces the incidence, but it's not very well controlled. And in fact, if you look at data out of the States on people with thoracotomies, a very invasive procedure, recessive thoracotomy, in the emergency department, the incidence of infection is very low. So whether antibiotics help or not is a moot point. We tend to use them, but I haven't got a lot of good evidence supporting it. It's very low-level evidence. I think the important thing is uh, the aseptic technique. It's important to have the tube secured at two sites with vertical mattress sutures. We use one silk either side of the chest drain. If you secure it with one uh, suture alone, what can happen is the tube can pivot along the fixation point and not at the time of insertion, but a day or two later in the ward and the patient's moving around, you get a pendulum effect along the tract where the tube can move in and out along that suture fixation point. Well, if you have it tied either side, you tend not to get that pivot point and that tract inoculation. Secondly, it reduces the likelihood of the tube shifting or falling out of the chest, which is pretty embarrassing (laughs) and unfortunate for the patient. And you've got to remember these people are going to be undergoing chest physiotherapy and we're trying to mobilise them and such like, so they're not going to be lying flat on their back static. A lot of them aren't. They're they're going to be moving, the tube's going to be moving uh, with them. We do tend not to use suction after the first 24 hours because the suction itself can cause pain. It can also incite an inflammatory reaction within the pleural space and then, as you've seen, Mike, after a few days, people get this, you're basically sucking plasma out of the chest and then that, that continues even after the chest drain's removed and there's very little evidence that suction is of any help and it's probably detrimental after 24 hours. We tend to only use it with large hemothorax anyway, sometimes with air leaks. Using ultrasound is very good in the follow-up of chest drain insertion. So you can actually see whether the pneumothorax is resolving using sequential ultrasound technique, particularly if it's the same operator. using it on a daily basis to see where that point is and whether the pleuris come up against the chest wall. And it's also very good for tracking uh, haemothorax and resolution. You know, it's very easy to see the pleural space with ultrasound, as long as there's not a lot of subcutaneous gas at the time. So it's, it's a good way of tracking Resolution much more effective than chest X rays.
0: Yeah. It's certainly something that um that we use a lot on the trauma ward rounds. I'd often be trailing the uh, the ultrasound behind <laughs> you. <laughs> no, it's and, it's, it's, and, and it's a very
1: very useful way of look, looking. Look, you, at you the get chest. some surprises. I mean, you know, the people who don't seem to need plural decompression at the time of presentation, and then three days later on the ward round, you do an ultrasound. And now they've got a four or five hundred mil hemothorax. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, and as you say, it's often surprising the patients who um, who you find those on, particularly the the elderly patients that, that we'd seen or the patients who are certainly 60 plus would uh,
1: would tend to just grumble along and present that way. Yeah, the ribs move. They start oozing. Uh, we've introduced anticoagulants, therapeutic anticoagulation, and then they start oozing.
0: So we've covered a lot of ground and I think just in summary, obviously, we need to break this procedure up into two parts, as you said, Mark. So we need to break this up into pleural decompression, which should be done relatively rapidly and certainly... For me, I think probably have a, a low threshold for doing that in a patient, particularly who's unstable, but patient who you believe actually has a requirement for that. And then the second part to the procedure, which is the insertion of the pleural drain, which, as you have very eloquently mentioned, needs to be uh, have some time taken over it and is really the part that will allow the, the ongoing drainage of whatever fluid or, or air is there and the part which will probably cause them the most morbidity Well, I'm sure we could sit here and talk all day about chest trauma, Mark, being your pet topic and something that uh, I've found very interesting. Was there any other points you wanted to
1: bring out that we haven't already covered? Yeah, one thing we haven't mentioned, Mike, is needle decompression of the chest. And uh, it's an interesting concept because it was originally described using an IV bung in North Africa by the British The original description I think was in 1944 and these were for people who were non-ventilated patients and they were stable enough to be transferred back to a field hospital and you could use uh, this IV giving set with a one-way valve and a metal bung and you could put the metal bung anteriorly into the second intercostal space and use the one-way valve from the IV giving, the rubberized IV giving set so they could be transported back to the field hospital, they didn't have hemothorax. they didn't have hemodynamic compromise, they weren't shock patients, they were stable patients who weren't ventilated. And then all of a sudden, needle decompression got uh, morphed into a resuscitative technique in ventilated patients, where it's absolutely critical to decompress the pleural space. Absolutely critical. And the only way to be absolutely confident is to stick your finger in the pleural space, know you're in the pleural space, see whether the lung's up or not, and vent whatever's there under pressure. And sticking a little needle in that may or may not reach the pleural space, may get caught up in the subcutaneous gas and give you a false positive is fraught with uh, risk to the patient uh, because of the false positive negatives that it can uh, give you. Now, I understand that someone is in the back of beyond, which is just slightly west of Collingwood there. And, uh, and they may have no other means of decompressing the chest, and they decide to use a, an intravenous cannula to do it. And I think, well, you've got to use what you've got when uh, things are limited. But in hospital, the way to decompress the pleural space is with a scalpel, artery forceps, and a finger. And then you, you know you've definitively done it. I think it's
0: very interesting looking at the Victorian experience with our microparamedics using the, the pneumocath, which we've recently trying to change uh, them to actually doing also an open technique with a finger thoracostomy. But certainly anecdotally, and I'm sure you've probably got some more evidence behind this, but very frequently we would see patients coming with a pneumocath, which is basically a very big cannula, either malpositioned or with a reaccumulation of a pneumothorax or just unable to train a hemothorax and patients who are significantly compromised by the process. So, yeah, I think it uh, really just adds weight to your argument.
1: Yeah, we've published on this, and there's a whole range of reasons. I mean, one pe- people confuse the mid-clavicular line uh, with the, the mid-position between the midline of the chest and lateral chest wall, and it's actually much more lateral to that. So people can come too medially, they can go into lung, get an air leak and think they've decompressed the pleural space because the, you know, the Heimlich valve, whatever, is fluttering. They can go into gas and think they've decompressed the pleural space when they've decompressed the subcutaneous emphysema. They may miss the chest because they've gone high and too lateral and just go into the axilla and then think that there's no You know, We have seen cases of people with tension on the right who get decompressed on the, on the left first and the needle goes into the pulmonary trunk or anterior part of the heart, and then then they end up with pericardial tamponade, and there's been two deaths from that in the last decade or so. So it's a blind insertion, it's sort of like the American equivalent of the Hail Mary Pass, you know, the uh, things are really desperate, and this is all I've got at the moment, and I'm going to stick it in and... And you only remember the successful Hail Mary passes. <laughs> not, the, not the ones that uh, go out the back end or get intercepted. <laughs> and it's the same with this. So people then have this limited experience. But if you look at the literature on needle decompression of the chest, as a resuscitative technique. There's very little convincing evidence that the risks outweigh the benefit. Uh, having said that, if it's the only technique you've got, well and good. But for trained uh, proceduralists... I think you've got to be definitive about it, and insert your finger into the chest through an incision. You know, thoracic trauma is increasing. There's increased incidence of elderly people in the community more at risk of rib fractures and thoracic trauma. There's a lot, lot of our patients now. About a third of our patients actually with blunt trauma have got other comorbidities. They've got COPD, emphysema, airways problems. You know, it's, it's quite amazing in the community how many people with medical problems out there just functioning normally have got normal lives. And also, as you know, that population bulge has moved on. So, in fact, our thoracic trauma rates have gone up about 30% in the last five years. And that's basically in a lot of other organised trauma systems. Uh, they've seen the same demographic. So it's something that we should be good at and it needs to be sometimes modified to the requirements of the patient, but it's something that has to be done absolutely perfectly to ensure the best outcomes. You don't want the procedure itself to compromise the outcome of the patient. to there to benefit them. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time, Mark, and we'll see you on the course. No
0: worries.